Hello, and welcome to Roy's Rants with your host, Roy Stiffy. Uh, yes, you can make fun of that name. I have made fun of it for many, many years since I've had it. <laughs> Anyways, a little bit about myself before we go into uh, today's topic. I am a commercial freelance artist with 20 years experience. I draw comic books and storyboards and illustrations. I paint toys and sell them online, so I'm an all-around nerd. And I have a lot of opinions about nerdy things. And that will be the focus of this podcast, Nerdy Rants About Nerdy Things. Today's topic is about two movies that have recently been released. The um, 2021 movie Candyman, which has actually been in production for, you know, it was supposed to be released last year. And the uh, 2021 movie Malignant by James Wan, uh, of which I have many, many thoughts on as well as Candyman. So first off, Candyman uh, is a movie directed by Nia DaCosta, who is the uh, first black female filmmaker to get a number one movie in a box office for a weekend. So congratulations to her on that. And the storyline basically goes like this. In present day, many years after the last of Cabrini Towers have been torn down, Anthony McCoy and his partner move into a loft in the new gentrified Cabrini Greens. A chance encounter with an old timer exposes Anthony to the true story behind Candyman. Anxious to use these macabre details in his studio as fresh grist for paintings, he unknowingly opens a door to a complex past that unravels his own sanity and unleashes a terrifying wave of violence. I got that synopsis from IMDb. Uh, Candyman is a superb sequel that respects what comes before it and also adds to the mythology. I absolutely love this film. It was such a breath of fresh air. I think about how a year ago when I first saw the trailer, you know, the first glimpse of Candyman, I didn't know what I was looking at. The trailer did not show Candyman at all. It it literally just hinted at the thought of Candyman. You see one honeybee uh, sting our, our protagonist's hand and his reaction to it. You see a bunch of reaction shots. It's not its not telling at all. And they started using a cover of Say My Name. Uh, I can't remember the artist who recorded that, but maybe I'll put it in the show notes later. Uh, which I was kind of like, I get it. I get the tagline, say his name, get it? Because the whole mythology of Candyman is basically the myth or the, the legend that if you say Candyman five times in front of a mirror, he comes and he kills you. It's essentially Bloody Mary. Um, it's all based on a short story by, um, it, it, why am I losing my mind? I'm losing my mind. Clive Barker, wow. Uh, I doubt I'm gonna edit this. We're just gonna go with, with Raw. So if there's a bunch of missteps here, bear with me. But anyways, Clive Barker's short story. And then a lot of things was changed. Um, obviously, Clive being an English writer, all of his, you know, most of his stuff was kind of based in England. So they moved it all to Chicago and Cabrini Green and with all the racial tensions in the original Candyman. Uh, and that plays a huge part in this in this version. Um, like I said, Cabrini had been gentrified. It got cleaned up. There's, there's sections just kind of cordoned off. That's the old Cabrini Green, you know, the old, um, you know, projects. And you see a lot of that in the, in the story of this artist, Anthony McCoy. Uh, his artwork is, of course, you know, in, for the sake of the story, very racially uh, motivated. 
Uh, he, he depicts pictures of basically slavery and lynchings and stuff like that. And uh, the, deal, the art dealer that he deals with, who works with his girlfriend, uh, basically says, you know, this is old, this is tired, I need something new. So Anthony takes upon himself to kind of, you know, after hearing a story from her cousin, who's hilarious in this movie, by the way, um, you know, here's a story about Candyman. Now, this Candyman uh, that is introduced in this movie is not Daniel Robitaille, the character portrayed by Tony Todd in the original trilogy. Although, would you call it a trilogy? I don't think that was the intent of it. They just made three films. Uh, it is a new character named Sherman Fields. And this is what I thought was brilliant about this. And a lot of times when genre pictures do this thing where they um, they tell you what, what you didn't know. Here's what you didn't know. Uh, this whole new mythology exists. It's usually horrible. Um, Jason Goes to Hell comes to mind. Uh, you know, where they introduced that, you know, Jason had a sister apparently. And Jason's mom brought him back to life with the Necronomicon. That's how he came back, was she used sorcery and she was involved in, you know, he's basically a deadite. And there's a dagger that you have to stab him with to kill him. There's all this new mythology introduced in Jason Goes to Hell. And there's been eight movies prior to that where none of this is mentioned. So, it's, it, you know, it comes out of nowhere. Freddy's dead, but what you didn't know was that he had a daughter, you know? And But the thing is, like, I don't mind those. I am one of those underdogs who, frankly, I like... But what you didn't know is a lot of times, I like having the script flipped. I like having changes on things. And we'll get into that later because I do want to talk about um, Master Universe. Uh, there's a little tidbit at the end of this podcast where I'm going to talk about my thoughts on that. We'll expound upon it later in another episode. But what really kind of, you know, those things appeal to me. I like, I like campfires, that things change. I like the telephone game, you know what I mean? You tell one story one end, by the time it gets the other, it's totally changed. Uh, I find that fascinating. I find campfire tales fascinating because they, they they evolve and they change. We as a society, especially when it comes to you know it comes to film, for some odd reason we think film is locked in and it can't be changed and it's ironclad. And every time you introduce a new chapter and change things up, you alienate um, everybody involved. Like everybody just like ah, I don't want to deal with it. I don't want I don't want that change. Well, Candyman does that. Candyman adds to the mythology but at the same time it doesn't erase anything it doesn't it doesn't say that you know you can't have these things these things don't exist it says literally we're telling you the rest of the story we're giving you an extra portion of the story for you to enjoy i'm sorry if you can hear my neighbor's motorcycle come down the way <laughs> this is podcasting at its finest i'm sure you'll enjoy more sound quality things uh later on down so what, you know, with this introduce, introduction of Sherman Fields um, does is it doesn't, it doesn't like piss on the Daniel Robitaille mythology. It doesn't say that didn't happen. It's just that you're hearing another part of the story for the first time. And it's very refreshing. So Sherman Fields was a character, I believe in the 70s, who had a hook for a hand and he loved handing out candy to children. And basically what happens is he's on the run. He's, you know, I believe there was some disappearances and he got connected to it or an assault. Um, mind you, I didn't take notes when I watched Candyman a couple weeks ago. Bear with me. I apologize. Uh, 
I'm sure, you know, if this gets out here, people listen to this, I'm sure I'll get some comments. <laughs> but uh, Sherman is on the run, and uh, this one character tells a story about how um, they were a child who discovers Sherman hanging out in the walls of this apartment building. And he basically screams when Sherman comes out of a wall handing him, he's got a handful of candy, but he looks creepy as hell. And so this kid screams and there's cops everywhere looking for this guy. And they come down and they beat him to death. So that is the new Candyman mythology um, for this movie. Doesn't, doesn't get rid of Daniel Robitaille, but it's, it's what we follow for most of the movie. It isn't until later on that we're revealed, you know, it is revealed to us that, you know, Daniel Robitaille is just one legend. Like, he's like the one who started the legend, but it's, it's been added. So you have Daniel, you have Sherman, you have obviously Helen Lyle from the original Candyman movie, spoiler alert for a movie that's been out for 30 some years. Um, you have James Byrd Jr. and George Stinney. These are implied at the end of the movie. They never like outright say their names. There's several Candymen who are shown in the movie. Um, but those are, those are both people who uh, unfortunately um, lost their lives due to unfortunate race, systemic racism and bigotry and just horrible times in America. Um, one of the things that I saw in a lot of reviews for Candyman that really upset me where so many people were like, it's too political, it's too woke. Where are the, like, where's the gore and the violence and all this? Like, I didn't want a film like that. I just wanted action-packed horror. That's not what Candyman is. That's not what Candyman ever was. That's what upsets me about it. It's like the first Candyman movie, you got a white girl going through, you know, a really bad part of Chicago where, like, there's gangs and drugs and everything, and, you know, there's a guy who beats the crap out of... The, the Helen Lyle character, um, you know, and she, you know, she's beaten up. They ha they show her with like a black eye, split lip and everything. And she goes to the cops and everything. And yeah, they catch the guy. But there's also like that element of, you, you know, there, there's, there's definitely some oppression there because every time she goes to talk to people, try to get the legend of Candyman out of these people, they don't want to talk to her. They don't trust her. They think she's a cop. There's, there's racial tension in there, and there's, there's tension towards the cops in the first movie. If you don't see that, you're not watching Candyman. I don't know what you're watching, but you're not watching Candyman. That has been a part of that mythology. Even, like, I was watching Candyman 3 the other day. Uh, I believe it's Day of the Dead is the title of it. Um, it's horrible. It's a horrible, very bad... There's scenes with, like... A lady covered with prosthetic bees, and they CG bees over her. Um, there's a scene where Candyman's floating. You can tell he's cropped out of something, like it's really bad rotoscoping. Because uh, they just didn't want to, they, they didn't want to bring in a rig. <laughs> they didn't, they're like, oh, we don't have, we can't afford a rig for the scene to have him float, so screw it. We'll just put him on green screen, and we'll try to make it work later. And it does not work, because you can see the silhouette. It's pretty bad. But... Even in that movie, there are corrupt cops who, like, write things off and they're, like, really bad and they're very racist to the other cops. It's like, that's been a theme for Candyman forever. So, everybody nowadays saying it's woke and it's, get off your high horse. It is definitely fitting with the story. I believe it, it was a brilliant concept to say that Candyman is born out of 
hate and spite and and things being wrong and the need for justice. He is, you know, he is a character of, you know, kind of biblical justice is kind of the thing. It's, or like, you know, uh, like an old fairy tale. It's it's not, you know, you know, like the old the old fairy tales were very grim, <laughs> grim fairy tales. Uh, you know, that's what it was meant to be. That's that's how it was. You you basically they're not fun stories. They're not happy endings. And uh, this is not a happy ending in this one either. So yes, uh, Sherman Fields is the new Candyman of this movie. It's a very creepy motif. Um, he the the character the actor, which I, I do apologize, I did not remember the actor's names. I should really, uh, you know, from now on when we do these, we'll, we'll do a little bit more research. Well, I'll, I'll let you know. But the actors all do great parts. Everybody does some phenomenal acting. The main actor who plays. Anthony McCoy, his descent into madness as he becomes more and more obsessed with the idea of Candyman is just brilliant. He does a great job. Um, he realized, I mean, I believe he realizes way too late that he's becoming the monster and to watch his slip into it is, is phenomenal. Uh, the one thing I would critique Candyman for, and this is the thing that other horror movie tropes have done, is the need to um, basically show deformity, like like show a transformation of the character, and the reactions to people around them. There, he gets stung by a bee, like I said earlier, um, and it starts to get infected, and it kind of travels up his arm. And this is like by the end of the movie, you realize why. But at first, nobody says anything, like. He walks around with this scabby crap for like good half of the movie and his girlfriend doesn't say, what the hell is going on with your arm? Go to a hospital, dude. Like it's not said for a long time until he goes, I, I, I'm trying to remember if he goes to this dinner party and he's scratching at it and he's lifting it up a bit and this the, the, the woman sitting next to him at this dinner party is like, ew, could you not? Hey, what are you doing over there? I would be vomiting. If I saw that, I'd be like, oh God, get get away from my table, bud. You need to get up and go or I'm going. I would not just be like, hey, could you stop picking at that in front of me? Like, yeah. And when he goes to the doctor's office, by the time he goes to the doctor's office, it's literally spreading up the side of his face. The doctor's office doesn't apply anything to his face. They just bandage up the arm nice. They're like, yeah, here's some antibiotics and some steroids. Uh, please keep us posted what's going on. And he gets out, he leaves. And I'm like, that dude looked like he got leprosy. Lepers should not leave hospital. Lepers should be in a quarantine chamber. I'm just saying. Um, so yeah, like he spends the rest of the movie with like half scab up his face. He kind of like, it doesn't, I mean, by at that point, he's pretty far gone. Um, the kills in this movie are phenomenal. They are well thought out with the use of mirrors, the, the whole idea of Sherman. He's not there, but he's there. Like, you know, you can't see him in the real world, but you can see him in the mirror, at least until, you know, he becomes a little bit more physical, you know, physical in nature as, as the movie progresses. Um, there's one kill in particular I really liked, which is funny because a lot of critique, you know, critics critique the movie for having this in it. Uh, earlier there, when he does his first piece about Candyman at a, at a gallery showing, 
There's a teenage girl who takes special notice of the exhibit and she starts recording stuff and I think she's looking up stuff on her phone. And then she's kind of gone from the movie for a while. I knew there was something because the camera holds on her for a while. So I'm like, that's going to come back. Later on, she, as, as, as the murders are starting to pile up, she takes her friends into the bathroom, um, you know, at school. And they, they pick on a girl, and she's stuck in the toilet, just kind of ignoring them and everything. And these four girls or whatever, they're sitting, they're standing in front of the mirror, and I believe this, this is in the trailer, too. Uh, they start saying his name. They say his name five times. And after they say the fifth time, I believe it doesn't really quite work right away, but they try to leave, and the door is locked, and then they hear something, so they go around. And the girl in the, on the toilet, I believe she has her earbuds in, so she's not paying attention at first. And one girl goes over and you hear her grunt or scream or something, then you hear a thud. And then another girl goes over. And then of course, things start shaking and everything. And the girl on the toilet like gets distracted, pulls off her headset because now she can hear people screaming. And she drops, like I think a mirror drops on the floor. Maybe not her mirror, but one of the girl's mirrors. And you start to see blood pooling everywhere. And you hear screams and you can see like the hook or you know, you can see like little bits and pieces of the murder. And I thought it was really good. I've seen it before, yes. Um, a lot of people didn't like it because they thought it came out of nowhere and didn't fit the rest of the movie. But I argue that it fits the rest of the movie because the whole point to show that was to say his legend is spreading again. And that's one of the themes about the movie that I really liked about it was that Candyman had disappeared for a while. Candyman kind of faded into obscurity. Um, and so with you know, Anthony McCoy digging up the past and asking about this guy, you know, because this, and it's so funny because it feels like, like people in the community kind of realize they should not bring up Candyman. Um, but this lot, this guy who runs this laundromat, Anthony discovers like more about Candyman after hearing the story from her cousin. Um, he finds out more and more about him from this guy. This guy's spreading the story of Candyman to try and resurrect it because, and there's a great twist to this, Anthony McCoy is the baby that was saved in the first Candyman movie. Um, Helen, you know, Helen Lyle, uh, the, the, the main protagonist of Candyman, uh, the first movie, saved this baby from Candyman who had marked him as a sacrifice uh, for the community. The whole thing about Candyman in the original and Tony Todd's version was to be my victim. Be my victim, Helen. You know, he... He was always... I can't do Tony Todd's voice, sorry. I don't talk that low. Um, <laughs> I can't even do that. That's horrible. Uh, you know, so Candyman was always about being my... It's very romantic. He was always... He always romanticized death and dying. It's very, you know, very Shakespearean, very goth, you know. Um, so, you know, Helen was to sacrifice him. Or, you know, she, she like, threw, you know, threw her. Candyman kidnapped the boy through her, you know, set it in the bottom, you know, basically it was going to kill her. But Helen fought back and Helen sacrificed herself and burned with Candyman in this sacrificial funeral pyre to save this boy. And then Helen in turn became Candyman because her legend spread about the neighborhood, about this vengeful, you know, this white woman who, you know, stood at the Candyman or whatever, and she's vengeful. And, you know, maybe like people told it differently, like, oh yeah, she went psychotic, chopped off. And that's how they tell the story was that Helen you know, chopped off this dog's head and Helen, you know, killed this person and killed that and kidnapped this boy and all this stuff. 
And, you know, we all know that it was through Candyman that this happened to try and just basically destroy her um, mentally and physically. So that was, you know, that was, a, that was Helen's story in the first movie. Anthony was being prepared by Candyman for this moment back then. That was the big reveal was like, you know, this is kind of the end game for Candyman to keep the legend going. And this guy in this laundromat wanted to physically, he wanted to make a Candyman. That's what he ends up doing. He ends up turning McCoy into a Candyman. And it was so fascinating, you know, to see this transformation and tragic at the same time. And the, one of the things about the movie that I also love on top of the storytelling, the acting, the camera work, there's some brilliant like kill scenes. Like you see this woman getting killed after Anthony leaves you know, this, this art critic and the camera pans away and you see this really cool painting shot, but you can see what's going on in the room at the same time. And I thought it was, I thought it was excellent. I loved it. Uh, so on, on top of that, you have the music. The music for Candyman was so foreboding and so it feels, it gives you a sense of dread, a sense of desperation it's it's very haunting it's it's very um unnerving you know every there isn't a moment in the movie where you feel safe there isn't a moment in the movie where you feel happy even the scenes with um anthony's girlfriend and her cousin who's hilarious absolutely love that guy uh he's like the comic relief but at the same time it's still creepy like there's scenes where they you know she has left him because his obsessions got out of hand they come back to the apartment to get things and the guy you know he's like we're here anthony show yourself we're gonna get some of her things and that's it and he's like you know don't make us you know kick your ass basically and it's like you ain't kicking anybody's ass <laughs> but he's funny he's so funny but the but most of the movie is just high tension, and you 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 know when it hits a fever pitch at the end, and pardon me, <laughs> we'll we'll talk about my personal health matters in another issue. <laughs> That'll be a fun episode to talk about. So basically, uh, you know, the end of the movie, um, we've revealed that the laun you know the the laundromat owner was all along planning to see like he wanted to turn uh, Anthony into Candyman to spread the to keep spreading the the myth the legend of Candyman and he's called the cops and the cops come and they overreact and they shoot first before asking questions and uh, you know Anthony is gone his girlfriend is covered in his blood she is traumatized they pull her in a cop car and the cop basically says, well, you know, we saved you, right? You know he was going to kill you, right? You know, you know, he obviously raised a weapon towards our officers and we had no choice but to shoot him. Or, or we can say, and hopefully you didn't hear my stomach gurgle there. Or we can say that you were part of the problem too and you're an accomplice. I mean, it could go one of two ways. Like, he's so scummy. It's so scummy and it is so very... Obviously, of the now, we, you know, we as a society have become very aware of uh, cops who do not do their job right, cops who bend the laws, cops who racial profile, cops who constantly, you know, are, are bending the law to their own will and who are racist. 
That's nothing new in American society, but it has become the forefront of things, thanks to technology, thanks to people recording things, and even cops' own cameras. We thought, you know, that was a thing. That was supposed to be a deterrent. We thought that putting cops with, with cameras would ensure their safety, ensure their liability, as well as our, you know, our safety. And I don't know how many times we've heard, oh, his, his camera suddenly didn't work anymore, or, you know. Or, yeah, he's on camera and he don't give a crap. You know, it's it's definitely something that is present. Um, so, that said, this is, you know, at the end, it was very of the moment. And, of course, we're all waiting for We know what's going to happen. The Candyman strikes. Anthony's Candyman. And you just hear him say, I am the writing on the walls. I am the whisper in the classrooms, you know. And he starts going and dispatching every one of those cops. And it's a good, righteous moment. It's clearly representing what many downtrodden people, people who who have been oppressed by cops, have wanted to see. It's, it's definitely cathartic. Uh, and of course, there were white people offended by it. I'm a white person. I'm not offended by it. That is, I mean, that is something that happens. You know, the, the police violence, it happens. We've seen enough proof of it. It's, it's, you can't deny it. And it doesn't mean that I hate all cops. It doesn't mean that I don't respect cops. But I used to live in a town full of corrupt cops. I, I know what corrupt cops are like. So, you know, Anthony McCoy gets his revenge. And she's set free out of the cop car. She gets out and, you know, she sees the last cop be taken out by Candyman. And Candyman kind of floats and swarms. There's like a there's a cloud of bees swarming him. Um, Anthony's disfigurement literally looked like honeycomb. Like that was the cool part I noticed that when it started happening on his face. I was like, the skin texture looks like honeycomb um, with those hexagonal uh, openings. Uh, so they have a new look for Candyman. I like it. I think it's fantastic. I think I, there's basically three versions of Candyman in this movie, although there are six versions of Candyman all together in the mythology. Um, possibly more. I'm not entirely sure. That would be up to them if they made a sequel, which I don't think it needs a sequel, but I would love for them to wait a couple more years and put out a new sequel with a new mythology or even carry on his mythology and pass the baton by the end of the movie like they did with this, I think that would be phenomenal. Um, as long as they tell a fresh new story. That's all. Um, can't be an art dealer. <laughs> can't can't deal with the art world and the gentrification, that stuff. You gotta get have a new theme going on there with the town for the modern story. But anyways, she confronts Candyman or Candyman confronts her and basically the best part, like the money shot, the thing all of you Candyman fans have been waiting for because I knew Tony Todd was in it. I knew he was in it. I thought he was going to play another character altogether and just be an incidental character. Anthony McCoy morphs like through bees into Tony Todd. And he's like, tell everyone. Roll credits. Phenomenal ending. Phenomenal ending for a phenomenal story. Well shot, well scored, well acted. I could not have asked for a better Candyman. You know, they say, like, name one movie that has a sequel that's better than the original one. And frankly, I used to think Candyman was boring. I used to not be super excited by Candyman or its sequels or any of that matter. 
I have a newfound appreciation for Candyman. I went back and watched the original Candyman after this, and I kept going, oh, that's in the new movie. Oh, that's in the new movie. Oh, that was there. They did their homework. Oh my God, this is great. And I had a newfound appreciation for the original Candyman. So Candyman... 1988 was it and i think this one was supposed to be out in 2018 but kept getting delayed um that's how i feel like it uh candyman 2021 candyman 1989 or whatever whatever year it came out i i'm bad at research right now i'm still learning okay i realize i gotta do research for this thing can't just talk out of my ass phenomenal they go hand in hand do you need the second and third one not really especially not the third one um it moves Candyman out of Cabrini Greens and into New Orleans, and I was just kind of like, okay, okay. And they they explain themselves. I used to hate the second one. I have a newfound appreciation for the second one. So that was a brilliant film, and I highly recommend it. And if you haven't seen it, sorry if you listened through the whole thing. I will put spoilers, um, you know, a spoiler announcement. Uh, obviously, if you're listening, you probably heard me talk about it, so you kind of knew there was a spoiler, but I'll put it in the description. Now on to my uh, least favorite new movie, Malignant. So Malignant was directed by James Wan. It was just released in theaters and on HBO Max. If you don't have HBO Max, I suggest you get it. I am not sponsored by HBO Max uh, that I'm aware of. (laughs) I'm not sponsored by HBO Max, but I was just going through today. They have all the Nightmare on Elm Street movies. They have the Friday the third. They have Jason X, Jason or Jason Goes Hell, Jason X, um, Freddy vs. Jason, and the Friday the Thirteenth reboots. All the New Line stuff. Uh, they have a lot of mainstream horror movies. That's the one thing about a lot of horror selections and other streamings. It's usually some weird bootleg, like yeah, I should say bootleg, but like direct-to-video crazy. Like Netflix doesn't have a lot of classic horror movies in it. Yeah, um, Amazon Prime has some. Pardon me again for my gastric disorders. (laughs) But uh, yeah, HBO Max seems to have like some core, you know, pretty mainstream stuff. Um, So that said, Malignant, uh, I'm just going to read off this, you know, this very short um, little uh, brought to you by IMDb user Tiborio. (laughs) Madison is paralyzed by shocking visions of grisly murders and her torment worsens as she discovers that these waking dreams are in fact terrifying realities. And that's kind of, that was kind of like the trailer. Now, oddly enough on IMDb, there are two plot summaries. One comes off as a tagline, which is the one I just read to you. The other one reads like a step-by-step walkthrough of the whole movie, which goes to show you what a mess the movie is that they felt the need to kind of walk you through the whole thing instead of giving you a summary. Cause it's not a summary. I was gonna, I was gonna, I was gonna quote it, but I was like, I'll be here for another hour. Basically, Malignant is a mess. I have seen so many reviewers, it's, it's, it's very polarizing. You either love it or hate it. Uh, you'll either love it and defend it to your dying breath or you think it's straight up trash, which I'm sure at this point you can guess which side I am on. Where do I begin? So obviously the main character, Madison, um, You don't really see her just yet. It starts off with this house on Haunted Hill looking sanitarium and it's 1993. (laughs) Which just, I hate that kind of crap. I hate that I'm old enough now 
the flashbacks in movies like way back in the bygone ages of 1997. And it's like, I graduated from high school, you prick. <laughs> so, you know, I'm old, okay? I'm not a youngster anymore. I am 42, soon to be 43. Ah. Um, so, you know, it does this flashback to the sanitarium and you see like alarm bells are going off. This doctor's talking about how Jacob, no, Gabriel, Gabriel, sorry. Not to say that the movie isn't memorable enough for me to remember the, remember the main killer's name, Gabriel. Gabriel is a tortured soul, blah, blah, blah. I don't, I can't remember what she said, but arms go off and she like gets outside. What happened? Gabriel's loose. He's heading for the records to see what he's really about. Oh my God, we have to stop him. And they get to this room and he breaks this guy's arm. He reaches in the door. I'm like, don't reach in the door, man. Don't reach in the door. You're gonna, oh, oh, your arm's broken. I hate that. I hate when they show blood and bones sticking out. That's the one thing. Like I watch a lot of horror, but whenever you see arms, like my, Oof. And I think this started with me when I was a little kid. The Fly. You know, 1986, Jeff Goldblum. When he does that arm wrestling thing with that dude, I'm like, oh, man, don't do that. It's going to be a mistake. You're going to regret that, man. Oh, shit. You regret that. You regret it now. It, you know, it was pretty obvious it was going to happen. And they're like, we need to cut this cancer out. And then it cuts. And it goes to, like, <sighs> I like James Wan. I, I, I like... The Insidious, you know, movies. I like the Conjuring movies. I like Saw 2, although he wasn't involved. He was Saw 1, but, you know, I, I like certain things. I like the concept of Saw. I don't like the execution of Saw, and I don't like the 20 billion movies of Saw. Um, you know, but I have watched all of them except for Spiral. Spiral's the last one I haven't seen. Uh... And there, there's Dead Silence. Dead Silence was like his 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 film before Saw, but after the Saw short, I believe, because he did like a short, and everybody was like, yeah, I Saw, and then he did Deadly Silence. I feel like this movie is a throwback to Deadly Silence. Deadly Silence um, days for him. Because the intro is like all like grungy, new metal, like, you know, this is 1999 or 2002, baby. And it's got flashing lights. It's got, it looks like a really bad Nine Inch Nails video. Like, I love Nine Inch Nails video. I love Closer, but it reminded me of Closer. And there's all these things being chopped up and stuff being cut open. And you're like, what is that? What is that? And I'm not like that impressed because I've seen that kind of crap before and I've seen it from him before. So I was kind of like, okay, kind of expecting more from you. And then, you know, we cut to this house, this dreary house, and this lady comes out, and she's pregnant, and I believe she's a nurse, she's got, like, scrubs on, and she gets in, and her house is, it, like, every horror movie, I love how every horror movie shows people living in the moldy house with everything, has got that, that drainage, look like a rainstorm had gone through it, so you see this drip, like, everything looks warped, and you know, and it's like, okay, nobody lives in those houses, like, really, unless they're, like, you know, seriously deranged or um, hoarders or people just can't afford. Like, like you wouldn't, you would, you would ask your landlord, can you can you touch that up with some paint or what? You would paint it yourself. You wouldn't you wouldn't just be like, I'm gonna keep that gross, obviously looking burnt ass door on that wall. I would, you know, like you just don't. But that's the house she lives in. That's that's the bur that is our burden to bear is that we live in a horror film house, so it's gonna be dilapidated, even though it's nice at the same time. It's, it's stupid. Um. 
And she's got this boyfriend, and he's sitting on on, on his ass, watching TV. He's not working. You just, you just, he's a typical abusive asshole alcoholic guy. And they get into a fight, and he says, she says some things, he says some things, and she, you know, he slams her head against the wall. And there's this blood, and he's like, oh my god, I'm so sorry, let me go get all... He, he runs out of the room, and she locks the door on him, and she just kind of, you know, is sitting there, locks the door on him, sits behind it, you know, he tries to get in, he gives up. Um, so she goes to lie down. Now, hey, if you have a concussion... Shouldn't be lying down. You shouldn't go to sleep, okay? Rule number one, you gotta stay awake. You should probably see a doctor. She doesn't do anything like that. Plus, she's pregnant. I don't know why this isn't dawned on her. So, you know, she goes to lie down. And we cut to, like, later on that night. He's sleeping on the couch. And I think he hears something. He wakes up, gets up, starts moving around. Hears something, hears something. And she's stumbling. Like, you know, we cut to her. And I think she's trouble sleeping. And she's kind of like, whatever. Um, I could be wrong. I could be remembering this wrong. Sorry I didn't watch it again today for this. Horrible research, horrible research, horrible podcaster. Um, feel free to fry me in comments. <laughs> so, I, you know, I'm watching this and I'm like, so far it's kind of cheesy. It's kind of whatever, you know. And, and my partner, Ruth, she's she's looking at this and like, mm-hmm, yeah, okay. This is a thing. But she's not telling me to shut it off. She's not saying this is garbage. Uh, she's watching with interest with me, so I'm like, all right, so far so good. But I'm feeling bad because I'm like, that opener in the, you know, the mental institution and the and the credits were just garbage. I was already very like, mm, not not very happy. Pardon me, I had to take a sip. Uh, so basically. This guy starts hearing things, and you see a spooky person sitting in a chair, and it looks like Samara from The Ring. I'm like, oh, Ring Girl's in this. That's cool. It's a crossover. Who knew? And, uh, you know, it does the little thing where he moves around, turns the light on. Up, oh, she's right behind him, and she stabs him in the head. At least it looks like it. It looks like a fist going through her head, and his head just kind of... <laughs> and then we cut to her waking up, and she's got blood all over her pillow. And I'm like, well, yeah, because you got your head bashed on a damn wall. I'd be bleeding, too. <laughs> Like, he hits her hard in the wall. Um, and so, of course, she comes downstairs, and to her horror, she finds her boyfriend um, head twisted around, body all broken and everything. And it's like, whoa, what is this? She passes out, falls down again. I'm like, still not good for the head. Nah, I don't know what's going on there. Um, and she wakes up, and she's in a hospital. And what's really funny is, like, she doesn't have any bandages around her head. Nobody's examined her head. I mean, she fell down. They're going to do You know what I mean? Like, hey, whatever. Uh, and that'll come into play later on. You, you Just you wait. And her sister's there, and she tells her you lost the baby. And that was one of the things that the boyfriend was, like, all bitter about, was she keeps getting pregnant, she keeps losing the baby. That was a plot point. Sorry I didn't bring it up. Bringing it up now. So, basically... You know, no one's accused her of killing this boyfriend. No one's like, uh, you know, they, they have some mild suspicions, but like, there's two cops. One's a really nice dude. Seems to like automatically like, you know, lock on her. Like you can tell he's got feelings for her. Um, doesn't take long for that, I think. Or the sister. Yeah, it's, I can't remember. Sorry, doesn't matter. <coughs> it's actually the sister he has, he has feelings for. That's right. Uh, nobody wants the main girl. She's a basket case. <laughs> funny that I use the term basket case. We'll talk about that later. 
Um, so basically, you know, she's released from the hospital. She's putting a sister, sister's like trying to keep an eye on her and everything. And she keeps having these flashes, these dreams where things melt around her. And she's at the scene where the killer and the killer's killing off these people. And it's very saw-like. He looks like Jigsaw with the pig face and the long greasy hair and the trench coat, but he walks really funny. And, you know, like eventually the cop catches up to him and it's this crazy chase where this thing is just unnaturally fast and moves around with like gymnast speed. It's like a ninja. And at one point, this thing kidnaps this lady who does a tour. And we like, while he's doing the chase with the, with the ninja killer, I'm like, aren't you going to run into that lady? Cause all the like all the scenario, like the lady does a tour of underground Chicago, I believe. And she gets kidnapped at her job and she gets put in this place as like this big industrial fan, all this stuff. Looks very saw like. And so, you know, we uh, we think the cop's gonna run into it, but it doesn't. So I'm like, okay, that's weird. And then, you know, we cut to back to the house with the lady and the sister and they're talking to the cops. And, and then meanwhile, we see the lady who's trying to escape from the... The, the the industrial complex whatever that's like underground and she falls onto the floor and it's actually the seal it's actually turns out it's the attic of the girl's house she's been there the whole time what a twist i was like wait a minute wait a minute wait a minute is there a giant industrial fan outside the like when i look at the outside of the house i don't remember seeing it but i think there might have been like a circular window or something i have to go back and watch it again but i was just kind of like I don't, I don't know about this. Like at that point, I was just kind of like, this movie, what the hell? Also, I forgot to tell you, the killer Gabriel, he can affect electronics. He can consume electricity apparently. Cause like in the beginning, he's like, he's soaking up the electricity and he's talking through radios and he sounds like Jigsaw. <laughs> or is it Billy? Do we give Billy the voice? Or we give Jigsaw the voice. Cause he always, he can talk through the puppet and not, who knows. Anyway. Uh, so, you know, Jigsaw Gabriel <laughs> can talk through uh, electronics. He can't speak like an actual voice, but he can talk through electronics. He has thought um, this monster. And, you know, again, how did he get in the house? What is he doing? You know, the, the cops start digging up more stuff about her while his sister is investigating more. And she realizes that her sister is adopted. Well, actually, her sister tells her she's adopted. She, she comes to that conclusion because like, the mom and her had this conversation like, yeah, her adopted. They come to the realization that she's been in this mental institution and that Gabriel is her brother. <laughs> and that he was abandoned by the mother who was the lady who was in the, uh, doing the tours in Chicago, who was upstairs in her attic. Turns out it's her mom, her real mom. And, you know, and I'm telling this story probably all out of order and crappy, probably because it is crappy. It's just, it's just sad. Like, I just can't, I can't get into it. <coughs> Pardon the cough. <clears throat> Real podcasting. Anyway, so all these pieces are starting to fall in together. And the girl, you know, finds these videotapes of the doctor from the beginning of the movie who was murdered by Jigsaw Gabriel earlier she finds these tapes of the inside the insane asylum she breaks into the insane asylum the mental institution wherever you want to call it and she finds these tapes and um you know they start watching it and it's revealed that gabriel 
was a twin stuck to the back of Madison when she was a little girl and Gabriel was feeding her homicidal thoughts. And Gabriel was literally a face and a weird bony chest and two arms, two like claw-like E.T. looking mofo arms. And they decide to chop his arms off, his chest and his face off of her and smush the brain and eyeball back into her skull and sew the skull. So what is happening is that basically Gabriel is Madison or Madison is Gabriel. He comes out of the wound from her head trauma and when he does take over her, her arms flip backwards, her legs flip backwards or like contort and she can do all this backwards karate kung fu shit. And we see this while the sisters, while the sister and the adopted mother are doing this research and find out, like, you know, they're watching these tapes. We see that, you know, Madison's been thrown into um, a holding cell with a bunch of women. They start beating the shit out of her. And that activates, that activates Gabriel. And she literally peels back the back of her skull to reveal this brain and eyeball. <laughs> And starts contorting, and then she proceeds to go around kicking the shit out of those prisoners in a kung fu style that I, I, you know, I would, I just watched Shang Chi in the Ten Rings, and I was like, damn, they could use some hints on on fighting by the choreographer who did this. Jeez, everybody was kung fu fighting in this bitch. And then she breaks out of the you know prison into the police station and proceeds to kill every cop in the most kung fu way possible. Pardon me. Not that it's boring. It's not boring. So, you know, just is what it is. And the cops got to, like, track her down. Like, she gets loose. They kick the crap out of the cops. They come after the mom and the sister. And there's a little power struggle between the mom and the sister and and Gabriel. Well, actually, she's no power struggle with the mom because the mom got her ass kicked earlier. So she's all tra- traumatized in a bed. You can barely move. But, uh, you know, so we, uh, you know, we get to this point where it's a battle, uh, battle of the ages. Not really. She has a gun and she's going to shoot her sister. That's the whole thing is like, he's jealous of any attention that, that Madison gave her sister. So he's going to kill her. And then, you know, basically he does, but it turns out Madison is now controlling his brain and his mind and has forced a mental prison around him and has trapped him. The end. (laughs) Like, there's no trial. There's no, like, hey, you know, sure, the brain guy was controlling you, but you murdered, like, 20 cops and 10 prisoners and four or five other people probably going to jail. Your life is going to be a hell for, you know, because you murdered so many people. You might even get, you know, the... the, you, you might even get the chair or, or or lethal injection. I don't know what the death penalty is in Chicago, if there is one. But your ass is grass. <laughs> it's so ridiculous. And what kills me about, you know, Malignant is the tone of the movie is serious. It's not... It's not like Sam Raimi made this. It's not like James Gunn made this. James Wan made this. And he's always filmed his stuff as very deadly serious. It's always been a very serious kind of soulless, joyless affair. 
I like the stuff for what he does, you know what I mean? But at the same time, like, if this was supposed to be schlock from the 80s, I want it to feel like schlock. I want it to look like schlock. You made it too slick. You made it too serious. And that's that's why I am not a fan of it. You can watch it for your own self, virtue your own conclusions. I've had plenty of people tell me I'm wrong. I had to literally uh, block a guy who was assaulting me for being wrong. Like, he was verbally assaulting me and attacking me and my artwork and everything. So, fun times. Uh, I, I, I recommend going out and If you have HBO Max, you might as well watch it because it's basically free for you if you're already paying for it for other services. Um, and let me know, you know, go ahead and, you know, in, co- in comments and replies or whatever, let me know how you feel. Uh, message me, you know, we'll set up an email and all that other stuff here soon. But I think there's, I don't know how all this podcast stuff works. I'm still working it out. But anyway, um, this has been the first episode of Roy's, a- Roy's, yeah, Roy's ass, Roy's rants. I'm going to keep the mess ups in. I'm going to keep it in. That'd be fun. Roy's Rants with Roy Stiffy. Uh, the next episode, which I hope to have next week, I will have a guest host, uh, Terry Bordis Jr. Uh, he's a longtime friend of mine, co-creator on things that we've uh, self-published books we've done before in the past. Uh, fun artist, fun, uh, you know, fun amateur writer. We're going to get him published this year. We're going to get him going on that. We have a lot of fun stuff to talk about, our memories, our things, the projects we wanted to work on the shows we loved and all that kind of stuff. We're going to talk about all that. Um, one last thing, He-Man and the Master Universe for Netflix on DreamWorks. I might squeeze in an early episode before the, the episode with Terry just to give my thoughts about that. Uh, and I will talk about Revelations as well then. So, All right. Thanks for listening. I hope to see you next time on Roy's Rants with Roy Stiffy. Bye-bye.